Praise God for all these kids. Praise God that they are hearing his word. Uh, it is a joy, as Trey was saying last week, it really is a blessing. It really is a joy to be gathered, and uh, it's a joy to be back with you all, um, to, to sing things like, uh, behold our God, to direct our attention entirely as a corporate body to the glory of the Lord, to his forever rule, his forever kingdom. So I'm so thankful to the Lord to be back with you all this week, and uh, I also am thankful to Trey for bringing God's word to us over the last few weeks and for reminding us from Philippians of what it looks like to live as citizens of heaven. It reminded me, as I was listening to Trey's sermons, it reminded me uh, very early on as we were looking at the Sermon on, uh, the, sermon on the Mount. We were looking at the Beatitudes and uh, seeing this is a, a snapshot, this is a picture of what it looks like to be a, a believer, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a citizen of this king's kingdom. And so it's just been such a, such a joy to listen to those sermons that Trey has given over the last few weeks. So thank you, brother. Uh, last week, I was at the Shepherds Conference at John MacArthur's church in California, uh, and it was such a privilege, really is an understatement, such a privilege to gather repeatedly uh, with over 4, 000, roughly 4,000 pastors from 88 countries to worship uh, the Lord and to be encouraged in pastoral ministry. Uh, you know, it, it strikes your mind as you're, as you're beginning to sing, and, and one of the things that happens that first morning of the conference when everyone gathers in, and John MacArthur always gives the first sermon and the last sermon, and, uh, and, and all those men start singing, you start to see all these phones come out, you know, and everyone's sort of going around the room uh, taking videos of this, because it is so profound and amazing to hear that many men singing praises to the Lord, and we started with a mighty fortress is our God, so even better for me, that's probably my favorite hymn. Uh, but what struck me about it as I was hearing all of that singing was that I, I wasn't just hearing 4,000 pastors singing praises to the Lord, but that, those are 4,000 representatives of thousands of congregations like this one all over the planet, all over earth, 88 countries singing praises to our God and being instructed in his word. So what a privilege. That was truly a blessing. And as you would expect, a constant refrain at the conference was Paul's command to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. And you guys have seen this before. You've heard this before. But it's this command to Timothy, this simple, straightforward command, preach the word. That is the great message always of the Shepherds Conference, regardless, in this particular time, the theme was unashamed, but this is always the refrain, preach the word. And so today we come to a new series, a new book in God's word. We move from Paul's letter to the Romans, to the, the Christians in Rome in the first century uh, A.D., we move from there all the way back to the book of Exodus, written in the 15th century B.C. So we're going back 1,500 years to Moses' book of Exodus, to the second book 
of the Bible. So you, you can go ahead and turn there if you uh, would. And the passage for today is just the first seven verses. Now, I uh, ambitiously tried to take on the first 14 verses today. And it was only somewhat recently that I decided that that just really was not going to work out. So today, we are going to look at those first seven verses in the book of Exodus. And you'll notice that the posters have changed. And for that, we have Rob Corrin to thank. He does an amazing job, has for years, uh, putting these posters up. Just puts God's word in front of us. And it reminds us that we as a church revolve around the scriptures. And that's why in our vision statement, we have this idea of building on exposition. That, That has to be our foundation. That has to be our starting point because the scriptures, the Bible, is our starting point. And so I hope as you come in that you look at these passages. It is always challenging to select two. If it were up to me, we would have posters going all the way around the room from the floor to the ceiling with all sorts of passages. And, you know, it'd be quite long like Stan had to read. You know, just be all out of sorts. So to discipline myself and, and also help from others, we have two. And it is not easy to select two passages from an entire book, but We have these from Exodus 6 and Exodus 40 there for you to look at to kind of help us get a sense for the covenant-keeping God who redeemed his people from slavery and the glory of God which came to his people, God's presence with his people. So here we are in the book of Exodus and I love how the end of Romans sets us up for this transition by taking us back to Genesis. God's providence is always so sweet in this way, and to think that he does this in so many ways, for so many, for all of us, uh, we see the end of Romans taking us back to Genesis, to the story that begins in Genesis and then moves directly into Exodus. So let me just point you to two parts of uh, the end of Romans that do that first. Remember Paul's words in chapter 16, verse 20. This is what Paul said. The God of peace (coughs) will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And as you'll remember, when we were going through Genesis, uh, we started Genesis four years ago and ended it two years ago. Uh, One of the passages that was key to us in going through Genesis and understanding the story of the Bible that Genesis begins or launches is chapter 3, verse 15, where God promises Adam and Eve through his curse upon the serpent, through his curse upon Satan, God promises Adam and Eve that a descendant of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. He will bruise this descendant's heel, there's the cross, but this descendant will crush the head of the serpent. And we know that that is a a prophecy, that is an anticipation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, The descendant, as we'll see here in a moment, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, and David later. This descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, this descendant of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. And here at the end of Romans 16, Paul reminds his readers that in Christ, they are crushing and will crush the head of 
this serpent, that he will be, Satan, the devil, will be crushed under their feet, reminding us of Genesis 3. And then in Romans chapter 16, verse 26, Paul says that the gospel, very end, the gospel has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. That's a big emphasis of Paul in his letter to the Romans, that God has brought the gospel, the saving message of Jesus Christ, to the nations, to all the families of the earth. And of course, that brings us back once again to Genesis And there, chapter 12, verse 3, where God promises Abraham, after he brings him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, he brings him out of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia brings him to Canaan, he promises him there that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How is it that in Abraham all the families of the earth shall be blessed? Well, later he says, in your seed All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we know that is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Romans, we've been looking at the fulfillment. We've talked much explicitly of Christ, of his coming, of the gospel of God's grace in Christ that was preached by the apostles, Paul himself included We've been looking at the fulfillment end of the story, the period between redemption and consummation, between redemption and restoration. We've been looking at the end of the story where we see in action the crushing and this blessing of all the nations. Remember, when Paul writes Romans, he's writing to a largely Gentile audience. These are people who are, in some ways, ethnically speaking, totally disconnected from the story of Genesis, totally disconnected from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, from the nation of Israel. And yet God has reached out to the nations and he has brought near those who were once far off. He has brought near the nations. The outworking of the promise to Abraham is seen in the global preaching of the gospel. So that's where we've been. And now as we rewind the story, in Exodus, we go back to the beginning, just as we did in Genesis. So why now? Why should we do Exodus now? Why would I make a determination to take us from Romans to Exodus? And Uh, Trust me, there were a lot of books swimming around in my mind, places that we would go after finishing Romans, and uh, there's there's some that I'm thinking, you know, that that subject to change will almost certainly follow Exodus, but why is it that, that I landed on Exodus? Why Exodus now? Well, there are a lot of things I could say there, but the short answer is, I think Genesis is still a little fresh on our minds as a church. Now, I recognize that uh, some of you have uh, come to the church recently in the last two years. We finished uh, Genesis about uh, two years ago before we started Romans, and some of you have come to Four Corners during this period, and so you don't remember us going through Genesis, 
But for us as a church, as a whole, the two years that we spent walking through Genesis, I think, is still a little fresh on our minds. And as T. Desmond Alexander says in his commentary on Exodus, undoubtedly, it is impossible to comprehend Exodus fully without having first digested the whole of Genesis. And so I think in some ways, we as a church have digested in recent memory the book of Genesis. And so we we have that as a backdrop. We have that in our minds as a working backdrop as we now move into the second book of the Bible, the continuation of the story, Exodus. Exodus really does function like a sequel to Genesis. It picks up where we left off. It continues the story of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The story of Jacob and his 12 sons in Egypt. That's where we end in the book of Genesis. We have Jacob, he dies, and then his 12 sons there in Egypt. And we see this continuation, the fact that Exodus functions like a sequel. We see this from the very first word in Hebrew. In the book of Exodus, the very first word in Hebrew, which uh, unfortunately is not conveyed in many translations, and you won't see it conveyed here in the ESV, but be assured it is there in Hebrew, and it is this richly theological word, and. In this situation, it is richly theological because of its implications. It tells us, uh, and we're just going on. We're just continuing. This is a continuation of what we've been looking at in Genesis. In a sense, if there were no uh, beginning to a new book, you would simply just pick up where you left off at the end of Exodus. I mean, at the end of Genesis. So you could see this as just a continuation of our series on Genesis with this word and. Also, interestingly, we see that the opening words of Exodus are identical to those of Genesis chapter 46, verse 8. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. That's the way Exodus begins. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. And that is the exact same language that we find when Jacob comes to Egypt. In fact, the very next verse after the the passage that Stan read to us earlier, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. It reminds us once again that we are simply moving forward. We need to also remember, remember that Exodus is not only a sequel to Genesis, it is also the core of the one larger book known as the Pentateuch, or the five books. So the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, really function as five volumes of one work. It's it's like one large book from Genesis through Exodus up to Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law of Moses, these first five books of the Bible written by Moses. Exodus also gives us many of the great themes of the entire Bible. So not only is it the continuation of the foundational book, Genesis, 
And not only is it the heart and core of the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, but it also provides for us many of the great themes of the Bible. So understanding what is in Exodus helps us to understand most of the theology that that we find in all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. Let me give you a quote from one commentator named Walter Kaiser. This is what he says, Exodus contains some of the richest foundational theology in the Old Testament. Preeminently, it lays the foundations for a theology of God's revelation of his person, his redemption, his law, and his worship. It also initiates the great institution of the priesthood and the role of the prophets and formalizes the covenantal relationship between God and his people. That's amazing for our understanding of biblical theology, for our understanding of our God and his relationship to us and his will for our lives. And so although it may seem obscure to walk through some of this ancient history, it may seem obscure to to go through some of the genealogical material and to to walk through all these, these laws that you get after the giving of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, or to walk through the, the, the instructions for how to construct the tabernacle. You think, man, what is, how is this stuff relevant to my life today? I mean, understand how Romans 12 was relevant to me, but how is Exodus relevant to me? I hope you'll keep this in mind as we go through all these details and seemingly obscure ancient things that you'll keep these great and weighty doctrines that I just listed in view. God is is weighing us down in a good way with all of these great truths. We could say it this way, going through Exodus deepens our knowledge and love of God. And that is all of Christianity, If you think about it, right? All of our living, all of our speaking, our godliness, our love, our faith, our confidence in God, all of it comes through God using the truth of his word about his person and his work to deepen our knowledge of him and our love for him as we see how much he loves us, as we see the glory and grandeur of his great plan through our Savior. As we see all of this, as we, as we meditate on all of this, our hearts grow to know him and love him better. So that it can be said of us as it was said of uh, the, the very earliest uh, people of faith, even going back to Noah and before and Abraham, that they walked with God. That it would be said of us in that simple phrase encompassing all of sanctification, that we would be people who walk with our God. And that the Lord would use Exodus to help that be more and more the case. So today we're in the first seven verses, and the title is The Israelites in Egypt, Part 1. So we're just going to start looking at this with these first Seven verses. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. This is God's holy word. 
<clears throat> Exodus 1, 1 to 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his blessing over this time of instruction. This is a, the period in our worship service called instruction. So just a, another part of our worship of God today. So uh, don't check out or sit back or just kind of relax. This is not a time to relax. Let me just say that. I just, I just need to say that. Because this, this would be a time to relax uh, in you know, a movie theater or at a comedy show or at like some sort of speech, but this is a time to buckle in and get serious. This is labor. And I know, because I was just at a conference, I listened to 15 sermons over a few days. It is hard work, I know, to listen to preaching. It is, it is not easy. We have to calibrate our minds. We have to focus and follow. And some of us are note takers. Some of us are not as much note takers. That, that's not the issue. The issue is that, that we work as we're here this morning. So let's labor together in worship of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we're here together as a local church. What a blessing to belong to a local church, Father. Uh, Lord, I pray for all those among us who uh, are um, attending, Lord, that you would give them wisdom and insight as to whether or not to join, Lord. But I pray that they would have a joining mindset, whether here or elsewhere, Lord, that they would want to covenant with a people a local church, and, and share their lives with that people. Be served by and serve that people. Lord, we thank you for all of the souls here this morning. We pray that you would work in us, God, that this time together would be edifying, that it would form Christ in us, that it would grow us up into the head who is Christ. Father, bless us, we ask, with your presence. Bless us with growth and our sanctification. Help us, Lord, uh, to see our sin, to rely on you, to, to turn away from sin, to trust you anew. God, we thank you that you are so faithful, and we see your faithfulness in such magnified and manifold ways in these early books of the Bible. God, we thank you how... Uh, we, we saw your faithfulness in the preaching of the gospel in Romans and the contours of the gospel. And now we get to go back to the beginning of the story, Lord. It's a blessing to see that the Bible is one book. It is one great book with one great story of one great redeemer. We thank you for him and we pray that he would be honored this morning and that we would be conformed into his likeness. Be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So here, Exodus picks up where Genesis left off, as I said before. And the Israelites, or sons of Israel, as it said, I've entitled this the Israelites. It's a way of, of 
referring to the sons of Israel, which is the language that is used here in Exodus. These sons of Israel, these descendants, are in Egypt. And we see two things as we come this morning just to these first seven verses. We'll keep going next week. But we see two things in these first seven verses. First, their arrival, and second, their multiplication. So their arrival, first five verses, and then their multiplication there in verses six to seven. So let's look first at their arrival. Verses one to five. I'm gonna read those once more for us to put them in view. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. As Trey suggested in his sermon last Sunday, a good way to prepare for Exodus is to reread the last 14 chapters of Genesis. I was really thankful that he said that, and I'm sure everyone did that, you know, Sunday after they left church. Uh, You've read the last uh, bit of Genesis, chapter 37, on to chapter 50. This is the Joseph story, and it really does set us up. It's a great transition narrative from what we've seen in uh, the previous chapters of Genesis to what happens now at the beginning of Exodus, and we see that in the way Moses makes this transition. And that is also the reason why I had Stan read to us for quite some time from the climactic chapters of that story, chapters 45 and 46. Really what we get in those chapters is the climax to the Joseph story. Now we still have several chapters after that, but that really is the the climax point where we're finally Joseph's brothers realize it's him. And Joseph sends for his father, who hasn't seen him in so many years, and his father comes with his household to Egypt. It is always challenging to figure out how to set up a new series, and it's particularly challenging to figure out how in the world to summarize the book of Genesis. In some ways, that is impossible to do, Uh, in such a short space, especially under one sermon point. But I do want to make some kind of effort at giving us a background to to what we are reading here as a way of expounding on what these, these verses are saying. So for this, we have to go back to Father Abraham. The story begins at the end of chapter 11, really, but we see the action taking place in chapter 12. The story begins with Abraham. God had called Abraham away from Mesopotamia to Canaan. He had promised this land to Abraham and his descendants, and he blessed him with a son. This son, Isaac, was the child of promise. Now, what was so remarkable about this Abraham narrative was that God called this man from another land to go to a land that God would show him. Abraham is told to go. He doesn't even know where he's going. He leaves his his, everything he knows, his, his family's house, his father's house. He leaves his land and he goes to a land and God says, I'll show you where you're to go when you get there. I'll let you know. Okay? Abraham obeys the Lord. He leaves and he goes. 
And God promises him that he's going to make him into a great nation. He's going to give him many descendants. There's, there's a problem, though, two problems. This man is quite old, and his wife is barren. So before God can give Abraham many descendants, he's got to at least give him one. He's got to at least have one. And after chapters, as we read through Genesis, chapters of the tension of that as Abraham, we see him stumbling along, but he's trusting God, but he's still stumbling. God's faithfulness, we see, in his own timing, comes with the birth of Isaac. Though he was old and his wife was barren. Isaac was the child of promise. Through his covenant with Abraham, through his promise, covenant is another way of saying promise. It's another way of of, of understanding God binding himself to his people through promise. And through his covenant with Abraham, God was beginning to build a people. Yes, through the birth of one son. He was beginning to build a people, a nation, through which he would bring the deliverer, the Satan-crushing deliverer, and bless the whole world. So the history of the world really, in some ways, goes back to Abraham because it is God's promise to Abraham that is the outworking of the history of the entire world. And it will be the basis for the consummation and restoration of all things. God would bless the, bless the world through the deliverer who would come through Abraham. Then Isaac, the child of promise, had himself a child named Jacob. And Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, had 12 sons. God protected Jacob and brought him back to the promised land of Canaan with his 12 sons. And I could get into all of the details of how he came about having 12 sons. I'm gonna, I'm gonna not go through all the details of that, but, but one of the, the major things we need to understand is that uh, Jacob is sent to get a wife for himself back from the, the homeland of his mother. He's sent back to get a, a wife for himself and he goes there and stays with his uncle Laban. And there's all of this very, uh, in some ways it's very strange, kind of family dynamics where Jacob ends up with four wives, two wives and then two maidservants of those wives. And out of all of that, he has these 12 sons. God had revealed himself to Jacob before he left Canaan to go to his father and mother's homeland. He comes Uh, Before he goes, God tells him that he will protect him and bring him back to worship. And God did that. He kept his promise. He protected Jacob and brought him back to the promised land with his 12 sons. And these 12 sons became the foundation stones for the whole nation of Israel. As we think about Israel, as we think about the sons of Israel, as we think about the Israelites, these 12 sons of Jacob, these 12 grandsons of Isaac, these 12 great-grandsons of Abraham. They became the foundation for the entire people. One of those sons was Jacob's favorite. Jacob made the great error of having a favorite child. We all know as parents that that's a big no-no. We don't have favorite children. We love all of our children the same in truth and in practice 
But Jacob did not do that. He favored his son Joseph, who was the oldest son of his formerly barren, now she's passed away, wife Rachel. He has locked on to Joseph as his favorite. His brothers become incredibly jealous. They hate their brother Joseph. They loathe their brother Joseph. In fact, as we open up chapter 37 of Genesis, we see how much they hate him. It's repeated, they want him to die. They want him to be gone. Joseph's having these dreams, and uh, these dreams say that one day they're gonna bow down in front of him. I mean, he's already on their hate list, and now he's telling them that he's had dreams that they're gonna bow down to him. I mean, this is toxic. This is gonna go bad. We know that when we are reading those opening verses. So his brothers, in their jealousy, they sell Joseph into slavery. They were initially gonna kill him, slaughter him. Then they were just gonna leave him in a pit to die of thirst and starvation. And then they decided, well, he's our brother after all. Let's just sell him. And so they sold him into slavery to some Ishmaelites who brought him down into Egypt. But although Joseph faced much affliction, he went in as a slave and he went from slave down some notches to slave prisoner. So he starts out as slave and then he becomes a prisoner. The wife of his master slanders him and she's trying to come on to him and he refuses and she finally accuses him of the very thing she was doing and the master is outraged and puts Joseph in prison. But although Joseph faced these afflictions, a slave, away from his home, away from his father, he was just going to bring some food. He was going to check on his brothers. And then he's a slave, next thing you know, in a foreign land. And then he's a, a, a slandered, mistreated slave thrown in prison. In the face of all of this, we are repeatedly told that God was with him and blessed everything he touched. Everything Joseph did was blessed by God. God was constantly working in the circumstances of his life, providentially elevating him and elevating him and elevating him. So when he gets to Potiphar, his master's house, Potiphar sees how blessed he, he raises him up to the top. He's over the household. And then when he's thrown down into prison, the, the warden of the prison elevates him to the top so that he is the head over the prison. Eventually, through the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams that a great famine was to come, he was elevated by Pharaoh to the highest office in Egypt. It's, it's an amazing story. In fact, it is my favorite story in the Bible. I've said that for years. The Bible's so rich. It's my favorite story in the Bible. It's amazing. It's so rich in showing us God's providence. How do you get sold into slavery by your brothers and then you become a prisoner and the next thing you know, you're functionally Pharaoh? The Lord? The God who raised Jesus from the dead is the God who could easily do that. He's the God over the nations. He's the God whom we trust. The God who did that is our Father. 
The God who did that is our Abba. That's immediately relevant to our lives. That is immediately applicable to our walk with the Lord. He was elevated by Pharaoh to this high office where Pharaoh basically just gave him the signet ring and told him, you're in charge. You have everything in Egypt but my throne. He would be the one to stockpile food during this great famine so that the Egyptians would not perish. God had revealed to Pharaoh in a dream, two dreams as one, and Joseph had interpreted those dreams that there would be seven years of plenty, at which point there would need to be someone to stockpile all of the plenty, all of the excess and surplus to put it away, because after those seven years, there would be seven years of great famine, the likes of which had never been seen. And so Joseph is in charge of stockpiling and then distributing. But even more importantly, he would be able to provide food for his family back in Canaan. At the end of the story, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt looking for food. And of course, their brother Joseph is in charge of distribution. That's God's working. They're not going to starve. Finally, after a series of tests, Joseph makes himself known to his Brothers, and that's where we picked up in chapter 45. The family has healed. There has been repentance. And now it is time to gather the family back together. But this gathering is different. They're no longer being gathered together in Canaan, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are being gathered as a family in this distant foreign land of Egypt. So at the invitation of his son, Joseph, whom he thought was dead, Jacob moves his entire family to Egypt. And we read here, as we open up in Exodus, that there are 70 in all. And this is 70 excluding the wives. So these are, these are 70 who came from, literally in the Hebrew, 70 who came from the loins of Jacob. 70 that came from the thigh of Jacob. And they have come to settle in the best of the land, the land of Goshen. This is land in the northern part of Egypt in the Nile Delta. It's a fertile land and Pharaoh gives it to these, these family members of Joseph as a gift to him for all that he had done. Pharaoh lavishes this family. So let me read to you a few passages, just three passages that will help to pull all of this together and hopefully launch us into the remainder of Exodus. So Genesis 45, verses four to eight. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Who sent Joseph to Egypt? Well, on the human level, you could say those nasty brothers. They sold their brother and he ended up in Egypt. Notice Joseph's language, his interpretation. God sent me before you to preserve life. This is a sovereign God. He is sovereign over everything that happens in our lives. This is a worry-free life 
because we serve a sovereign totally in charge, God. Joseph goes on, for the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. Do you know why we're here this morning? It's because God preserved a remnant on the earth for these patriarchs. That's the reason we're here this morning. Because God preserved a remnant that would lead to Christ through whom we would be brought in through the preaching of the gospel to bow the knee to God's Christ, to God's Son, Psalm 2 style. That's why we're here this morning, is because God did this for Israel and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Another of the three passages that I want you to see to help pull this together is verse chapter 46, verses one to four. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid. Listen, this is the main thing I want you to see. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. Do you remember when Moses, uh, we'll see that in Exodus, he pleads with God, if you're not going with us, we can't go. We have to have you with us. And that goes back to promises like this. If Jacob would have gone to Egypt without the Lord, oh man, who knows what would have happened. But God promises, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And then finally, Genesis 47, 11, then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses as Pharaoh had commanded. So there they are, settled. We see God's hand in protecting his people from famine, but there is more to the story. You know, we get to the end of Genesis, we say, wow, God did all of that. He brought Joseph to Egypt. He, he elevated him to the highest position. God did all of that to preserve them from dying of famine. But there's more. Jacob and his descendants are not merely in Egypt, listen to this, to get food. This was the fulfillment of an older promise that God had made to Abraham himself. Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Do you hear that? Abraham knew before he had even had Isaac. This is amazing to me. God is, is making these future promises and he's telling Abraham, you haven't had the son of promise yet. It'll still be quite a while. Remember chapter 16 is the whole Hagar thing? He doesn't even have a child yet. He's just cried out to God about not having a child. 
And already God is telling him many, many, many years ahead what will happen. He says, your descendants will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God brought them into Egypt as a family. Seventy descendants with their wives. In order, listen to this, in order to bring them out as a people. God brought them into Egypt as a family in order to bring them out of Egypt as a great and mighty two million probably around or a little less than two million people strong at the Exodus. 600,000 men with women and children and to bring them into the land of promise as a force, listen to this, as a force of judgment against the Canaanite people. You know, for many years through university and elsewhere, I've just always heard, you know, that there's this, this crisis kind of thing about what God did to the Canaanites through the Israelites. That doesn't trouble me at all. It never has troubled me, and here's why. Because God did the same thing to the whole earth in the flood. God destroyed the entire earth, all people, aside from Noah and his family, in the flood. What God did to the whole earth through the flood, he did to the wicked people of Canaan. After years and years of patience and forbearance with their perversions and child sacrifices and so on and so forth, he swept his people Israel through the land of Canaan as a flood of swords rather than a flood of water. God was planning to judge the Canaanites by the hands of his people, Israel. And I think this just reminds us of something before we move on to our second point. God's plans are far bigger than we often realize. You know, God's plans come in layers. In some ways, to our perception, infinite layers. God is accomplishing so many things through the preservation of Israel and his sons, and the bringing down of them into Egypt. So how did they go from a family to a people, to a nation? That brings us to our second point as we finish up this morning, verses six to seven, their multiplication. Look with me in those two verses. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. When you read the end of Genesis, you might be tempted to move the spotlight off of the Lord and to put it on Joseph. We do that, don't we? That's the way it works uh, in the human sphere. We, we oftentimes will take the spotlight off of the God who uses people to the people who are used by God. Uh, we become sort of focused on man 
rather than focused on God. And you might be tempted as you're coming to the end of Genesis to sort of see Joseph in all of his elevated glory. By the way, when Joseph tells his brothers, go back and tell my father of all of my glory in Egypt, he wants Jacob to see the glory of God, what God has done. Dad, can you believe what God has done? Look at me. Look at me. That is Joseph's point. But we would be tempted to put the spotlight on Joseph. The death of Joseph here reminds us that it is God who has been providing for his people. Joseph was an instrument. He was used by God. It was God who was feeding his people. It was God who was protecting them. God used Joseph, but Joseph's life is not the key to God's protection. And this just reminds us, there's not a single person who is indispensable. I was talking with someone uh, recently about um, uh, these, these older men in the Lord who are, who are getting very old and some of whom have died. And we were talking, particularly coming out of the Shepherds Conference, about John MacArthur and, and more recently, uh, R.C. Sproul, who's died. And then even before that, we think of someone like Billy Graham who had died. And, and you, you think of these individuals and, and, and they're, they're passing away and they're moving on. And it just helps us to remember no one is indispensable. It is God who does the work. It is God who uses people. Even Joseph, even those men, and any of us, the spotlight is on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No matter how much God may use us, none of us is indispensable. As Genesis 50, verse 26 records, so Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That reminds us of something as well about sin and death. All along, we've read only good things about Joseph. And commentators argue about verse, chapter 37, is Joseph this sort of, you know, snot-nosed kid who basically is just sort of glorying in himself and, and he's, you know, rubbing it in the face of his brothers. I don't particularly read that into chapter 37. Some are more inclined in that way. But the point is, after that, whatever you make of that, Joseph is, in a sense, described as a stainless character. He's a lot like Daniel in the scriptures. He, the description we get of him is, is, is almost spotless. And yet he died. Why? Because of what Paul said in Romans 5. Through one man sin entered the world and through that death. Death came to all of us. Death comes to all of us because apart from Christ we are in Adam. And even as we now are in Christ, we are carrying around these mortal bodies participating still in their in Adamness. This world has fallen and even Joseph died. So what happened after the death of all the patriarchs? There's no more Abraham. There's no more Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph. There's no more 11 brothers. All these named individuals, gone. They've died. Now we just have the descendants. Many, many unnamed descendants. What happened? And the answer, put briefly, is population explosion. That's what happened. Incredible multiplication. The language of multiplication and fertility is piled up here in verse 7. 
Verse seven points us to God in three ways. So I wanna look at all this multiplication language in this way, how it points us to God. First, God is the creator. The language of being fruitful and increasing greatly, of multiplying and filling the earth. This language echoes Genesis chapter one, verse 28. Do you notice that? Do you see verse seven? Look at the words. It, 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 you can't help but to immediately go to the creation narrative, to chapter one of Genesis, verse 28. It reminds us of God's creation. And here's the point. It tells us that God is working out his creation purposes through this one family. You might be tempted to think after Genesis 3 that all that stuff that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2, it's exploded, it's shattered. No, no. There is no plan B for God. God was sovereign over the fall and he is continuing to work out his purposes though in a marred, fallen world. And this language of Genesis 1.28 reminds us that God's creation purposes are still a go. The recreation that God will bring through Christ happens on this turf. It happens through this family. Second, God is the one who cares for his people. We see that. Although the people are about to face centuries of suffering, we see the hand of God in their multiplication. His people remain in his hand, under his watchful care. You can't help but to read this supernaturally. Did God supernaturally multiply Israel? No. We know how babies are born. God naturally multiplied Israel with his supernatural, always supernatural providence. The God of history, the God who gave Sarah the ability to conceive is the God who in his power and providence naturally works in the descendants of Israel to make them multiply exceedingly. That is what we have here the God who is watching over his people. And, you know, this just tells us that this is what God does. God watches over his people. He watches over us everywhere we go, everything we do. God is our watchful eye. He is the hand that holds us up. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He's always present, and he always hears our prayers. Seek him, call out to him. He does not hide from his people. Third, God is the covenant keeper. This language of fruitfulness is the outworking and fulfillment of God's promises to each of the patriarchs. And I wanna read this to you. I wanna read just three quick verses to you uh, where God makes a promise to Abraham and then Isaac, and then Jacob. So it basically takes us through the narrative. Now, we might miss this trajectory if we're just going through Genesis slowly like we did, but let me give this to you quickly. To Abraham, Genesis twenty two seventeen. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. To Isaac, Genesis 26, 4. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed to Jacob. Genesis 35, 11. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. 
be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your body. So in this one verse, verse 7, we find all of this truth about the Lord God. We see all of this about him, that he hasn't abandoned his creational design. He's working to redeem it, that he watches over his people, and that he keeps his covenant. This one verse gives us these great truths. God is the creator who made mankind and who through his covenants made a way for us to be remade from the fall. He is the shepherd who watches over his people and will ultimately lead us to our eternal rest. And he is the faithful one who cannot lie, who always keeps his promises and who has fulfilled all of his word in and through his son. Isn't it amazing to just to, to sit back and think, God will give me heaven. I will be in heaven when I die. I will be raised from the dead. Just as sure as Isaac was born, just as sure as the children of Israel were brought up from the land of Egypt, and for that matter, brought into the land of Egypt. God cannot lie. And to just rest there, to know that that is our future, that that is our life. We no fear of death. I'm not a big fan of flying. Flying all the way to California and back. It's a long flight. Some of you guys are pilots, you're like, what? I do it all the time. But it's just so comforting to know anytime I get 30 some thousand feet above the ground that the Lord is my God. The Lord is my shepherd. And I'm in his hands. I'm not even in, in Ken or, or Bentley or Craig's hands. I'm in God's hands. He's holding me and he will be with me right up to the end. I'll be with him forever. That's the hope of the Christian. This is the God who will redeem his people in Exodus. This is the God who has redeemed us from our sins through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for this book of the Bible, Exodus. We pray that you would bless our entry into it. We pray that these great truths that were summarized at the beginning would just fall on our hearts through this season in the life of our church. We thank you for our season in Romans. We thank you for all that you revealed to us through your word. We pray, God, that you would sanctify us, that we would not just be those who hear it, but, Lord, that we would, it would change us. You are the God who transforms us. We pray that you would through Christ and through our time in this book of Exodus. We love you, Father. Thank you for being with us this morning. And we pray that you would bless our time in the Lord's Supper, God, that as we, as we partake of these elements, that our mind would be drawn to what our Savior did for us, that we would look around and see the, the, the covenant community that we belong to, and that we would look up and consider what awaits us in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.